Greetings, this is Kurt. Here we continue with the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, share, and follow on your favorite platform. We'd like to hear from you. Simply send comments, compliments, and questions to our email. If you care to be a benefactor and help in keeping these complex productions coming, it's very easy. Just buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you truly for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is episode 22. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter 26 The heaviness crushing his chest eased off gradually while somewhere in the summit of his awareness a single note was being played on a flute. Gaewan surfaced from the benumbed chasm of unconsciousness feeling something warm pressing firmly on his ribs unlike the uncomfortable weight of a moment before. He fluttered eyes open just as Gibberon removed his hands and smiled reassuringly at him. Having no idea how long he had been out, he was disconcerted to see a beamed ceiling way over his head. Flaina's gentle fingers caressed his brow. K-1? How are you feeling? Opening his mouth to respond, he stopped uh. and frowned as he realized he wasn't sure. Gone was the insistent urge to clear his lungs as well as the sting and burn of all the cuts and gashes he had sustained in the torrential winds of the Najan Cyclone. In their place was an overflowing contentment, hmm. but from whence it came he did not know. All right, I think. A collective sigh of relief from all around yeah, forced good. him to turn his head and look. Hmm. He lay on a long table, a bread and stew board in the Brass Dragon Tavern, the great room strangely empty of anyone except his companions. Gibberon, Flaina, Ablui were close, Durwan, Thasgar, Clough, Gan, Bryn, and Chania behind. I presume I'm not the main course. What happened? 
You fell unconscious. Your lungs were congested with dust. Because you were out, you couldn't expel the stuff on your own and were about to suffocate. He rested a comradely hand on the knight's shoulder. We pulled Gibberon out of the mountain man fight to render his talents. His first time on the receiving end of the knight's healing powers, Gawan was astounded as well as thankful. I'm in your debt, my friend. There is no debt. Tis my service as a channel for the light and sound of God. <sighs> Which you do exceedingly well. In gratitude, the enchanter firmly gripped the knight's hand. Are you thirsty, love? Very much. He tried to sit up, but quickly discovered this a mistake as the room started to spin. Whoa. The next moment found him prone again on the table. <clears throat> Twould be wise to wait for a little while. I've been told the effect leaves you a bit unbalanced, but it won't last long. Hmm. When the room stopped spinning, Gaewan licked his lips. I'm still thirsty. My mouth tastes like I ate half the street. That explains the hole in the road in front of the Athenium. <laughs> <laughs> yep. A tankard was handed to Flaina. She sat down beside her promised mate, dipped fingers into the drink, and dripped it carefully into Gaewan's waiting mouth. Well, now, we can't allow our friend to drink alone, but there's no one attending the bar. Allow me. I used to serve here a while back. Clough went behind the long counter and collected several tankards. Gaewan closed his eyes and listened to his friends potter about and decided he was enjoying all the attention. Somewhere outside, and not too far away, was the clamor of shouting and cheering men, along with the occasional crash of weapons. The battle for Hopetown seemed to be going well. Clough returned with an armful of tankards brimming with Trisk, and soon everyone was seated around the Enchanter, sharing viewpoints of the fight in the town square and the battle between him and Calron. As Gibberon had promised, Gawan was soon sitting up and quaffing Trisk on his own. Looking over Flaina as she smiled happily at him, hmm. he touched her brow <laughs> mournfully. Hmm. Your diadem. Oh? His elfin second lifted something hanging from his belt. Is this what you seek? The semicirclet of silver gleamed in his hands. Oh, Clough, however did you find it? He shrugged. It was on the ground, not far from where Calron had stood. He didn't mention what they had seen during Flaina's charge on the Dark Mage, or that when he picked up his sword from where she had dropped it, he had felt a psychic tug through the weapon that led him to exactly where the diadem was half buried under a slab of plaster and clumps of dirt thrown from the winemaster's exploding house. He reminded himself that the diadem had been in the same chest as the power sword, thus it may have absorbed some of the dormant properties of the weapon, but he couldn't fathom the sight of Flaina wielding his flaming sword with her eyes and brow afire. When he realized she was watching him with concern, he smiled amiably, gave her the diadem, and took a swig from his drink. Mm. Flaina admired the delicate gift for a few moments before placing it back on her brow and smiling proudly at her beloved. Oh, hmm. So, why didn't you try to defeat Calron outright? 
from what I saw, you merely deflected and countered whatever he threw at you. <laughs> God's Chania, tell me what's on your mind. She's not the only one who's wondering. You took part in a duel of magic and power, a rare occurrence. <sighs> Indeed. The enchanter rubbed his face where he knew it had been cut, hmm. surprised to find it smooth and supple, and thanked the Supreme for Gibberon's ability. That was the first one I've seen, too. And though I stayed with Trimble to watch his back while he cast the illusion of you, I still don't understand why you and he both didn't face off against Calron. A three-way fight would have been even more dangerous. Reflection spells are a common defense among mages. Thus, Trimble might have deflected a spell from Calron that would have struck me. As for defeating Calron, I have no doubt he could have repelled anything I could channel. Enchant is not a path for those who seek dominance over others. Hmm. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't sure what I was going to do except provoke him into making a mistake, which he did by bringing a third contender, the Mountain Man, into the fight. If not for Sunta, I could not have evaded the Najan. He stopped as the shock of that moment caught up with him. For a few moments he was racked with belated uncertainty and utter fear. What would I have done if the mountain man had not been behind me? It was one thing to take on a single demon afflicting its malevolence on the outer world, quite another to confront the powerful Najan in the limb-rending vortex of their domain. Hmm? Flaina's gentle touch on his arm brought him back to the present, and he managed an awkward half-smile at her concerned expression. <laughs> Just realizing how fortunate I've been. This time, he didn't say, not wanting to contemplate the future just yet. So Charon is defeated, but not destroyed. What happens to him now? Gaewan exchanged a knowledgeable glance with his second. Mm, he will remain in the Marshal's custody until his public trial, not only for his attack against Topetown, but also for the charge of murder for which he is guilty but escaped justice. How does one incarcerate a mage? I seem to recall a discussion this morning about locks and locking spells and how they can be countered. Tremble bound his wrists with a cord that acts as a ward against all magics, thus he was prevented from casting any spells. By now, that cord has been exchanged for iron shackles possessing the same property. It also serves to make him uncomfortable somewhat by cutting him off from that which he draws on to use magic. And only a mage can take the shackles off of him. The dark-haired warrior blinked introspectively, nodded appreciably, and took a healthy swig from his tankard. Any further questions were forgotten, as a crowd of exhilarated fighters descended onto the tavern with rousing cheers. Lazar, who had joined the Hopetown defenders for the duration of their battle against the mountain men, appeared in their midst. We are victorious! The others broke out in a popular warrior song of triumph. Soon, the tavern was bustling with ecstatic men chattering about the fight and their part in it. Finding the people's surge of pride in Hopetown and their corner of the kingdom both refreshing and heartwarming, 
Gaywan was not surprised to note that very few of the townsfolk were aware of the confrontation between himself and Calron. Some had seen or heard the small tornado, but had not known what caused it. Which is just as well. Common folk were already overly suspicious of mages and enchanters. They didn't need further cause to despise those who worked with the mystic powers. All that mattered was that his adopted home had accepted the obvious challenge and met it bravely. Their relation infectious, he beamed with inner contentment as he pulled Flaina close beside him and decided that perhaps he would not always feel like an orphan. shall we get married? Flaina loosened from their snug embrace and peered innocently into her lover's bright blue eyes sparkling in the faint moonlight. They lay upon the blankets of their bed, legs intertwined, bodies still pulsing with the afterglow of love sharing. The room was dark, the rising crescent moon casting a wan veil of light across the window where it made a distorted square on the wooden floor. Hmm, well... Seeing as we have a priest of the Freethinkers in our midst, why not tomorrow? He toyed with a lock of her auburn hair. Hmm, I don't think Ablui will appreciate being awakened before dawn with a short notice for a wedding. <laughs> you may be right. In that case, we'll do it the day after. <laughs> no, silly. I want a proper wedding for which we have to prepare. Didn't anyone ever tell you about girls and weddings? Well, girls, yes. He stroked her arm appreciably, but weddings? Then rolled his eyes in distracted thought, receiving a pinch from her in response. <laughs> Ouch! You can play games with mages, Enchanter. She chided playfully with a warning finger. But you shall rue the day you... Then stopped upon seeing his sudden frown. What's wrong? All pretense absent, he slid his eyes back and forth as he sought something unseen. Did you hear that? The dread in his voice sent the warmth of the moment fleeing before the cascade of chills that ran up her spine. She sat up quietly and cocked her head to listen. After a few moments of nothing but the distant crickets, she opened her mouth to query him, then not so much heard but felt a voice calling ever so softly. Do you see it? His eyes were focused on the shadows in the corner. Not waiting for a reply, he shifted away from her and got up to stand protectively beside the bed. She saw nothing, not even with her elfin night vision. What is it? I'm not sure. Close your eyes partially and use your tisratil. She concentrated on the space between her eyebrows until she felt her third eye tingle, then focused attention on the corner again. The outline of a man barely discerned itself from the fabric of the shadow. She resisted the urge to back away and cover herself with the blankets. Ethereal fingers reached out to him, beckoning. Who are you? There was no other response as he reached behind to Flaina. I need your help, Flaina. 
This takes a combination of energy from our bodies. Touch my hand. What are you going to do? Just touch my hand. There's nothing here that can harm us. She complied, never moving her attention from the vague shape in the corner. Gaewan reached out with his other hand. She felt a peculiar sensation like that of ice passing over her palm and sent a flash jumping from his fingers that first limbed, then illuminated their mysterious visitor for just an instant. She stared open-mouthed at the fading after-image of a man, the whites of his eyes shining out from a black face. Help us, Gaewan. The dynasty's hope is threatened. Gods! Gaewan's arm was still outstretched, but the image was gone. Paul? Though he had described Paul to her, she had never really imagined how such a person would truly appear. He's the demigod you met overseas in foreign. She suddenly doubted what she had seen first with her inner eye, then with her outer. Slowly, he lowered his hands and turned, his expression one of amazement. I never dreamed I'd ever see or hear of him again. What does this mean? A ball of gold light appeared over his head as he went immediately to where his cloak was hung beside the door and fumbled for his dagger hanging from the belt. Unsheathing the blade, he felt along the hem near the hood, then carefully cut several threads securing the lining. I hadn't expected I would ever have to use this. A round silver medallion dropped into his hand from where it had been secreted in the folds of his green cloak. But it's the quickest way to find him. Rothson's talisman? A transfer key. What are you going to do? With grave apprehension, he looked at the tarnished, semi-hemispherical medallion in his palm, the snake-link chain dangling from his fingers, gleaming secretly in the amber witchlight. I cannot ignore the task for which I was chosen. He lifted his eyes to meet hers and recalled the words of Ab Louis that evening in the meadow. There are no others. Her brow furrowed with worry. She blinked helplessly. But you don't know what that task is. And no one knew what was Rothson's error that brought the wrath of specters upon him. The joy of being keeper of Rothson's talisman drowned in the terrible burden that accompanied it. For the moment, there's a plea for help of some kind. Maybe? Maybe it's something we both can do, whatever it is. She knew she was being selfish. But I don't care if the alternative is losing him. You're scared, I know. So am I. She crossed arms under her bosom and frowned. There's something, something wrong, but I can't fathom it. She couldn't shake a sense of danger connected with the Shade's appearance. You're feeling the effect of the message imparted to me. There's something amiss wherever Paul is right now. Does that mean you're going to go to him? Perhaps. There's unfinished work that has been left for me to do. And as with all crises, time is of the essence. If that requires my use of Rothson's transfer key, then so be it. Can you use it for both of us? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Damn it, Gaywan! You made a promise to me. The crystal is now yours. Calron is defeated. The were-tiger is tamed. 
And yet you're telling me you have to go away? Far away? From me? Hmm. Placing the talisman aside, he came over to the bed and enfolded her within his arms like a bear with its cub. She wanted to shout with frustration, to beat on him with her fists, but at the same time knew... He has no choice in the matter. Unable to contain her fear and not wanting to be angry with him, she couldn't help tears from coming. She hugged him fiercely, wanting to shut out the rest of the world, the universe, everything. I will always be as near as your heart. How can you say that? Remember the night we shared the potion? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the effect of that potion? To make us aware of our bond, to... She couldn't help but smile crookedly at what he was pointing out to her. To make a connection between us. Care to test its effect? What do you mean? What am I feeling right now? She lifted her head to see his look of determination at her, decided he wasn't speaking idly, and opened herself to him. Her brow tingled beneath her diadem as she felt strange urges pass fleetingly through her awareness. Uncertainty? Mm-hmm. I don't know what exactly can be done. But there's something stronger. Open yourself to it and you will understand. Shutting eyes to the outside world for a moment, she allowed her inner awareness free reign and was startled by a surge of urgency coupled with danger. Somewhere, time was short, need was great. The sensation swelled and she grasped onto him for support. Oh. Instinctively, she shut off that channel and forced her eyes open. Gods! Now you see, she stared at him in amazement. Are your psychic impressions always that intense? Mm. They could be if I allowed them to overwhelm me, but I'm used to it. Most people shut off their inner senses, thus they never feel the currents and eddies of force all around us. Being an enchanter, I have to practice using that same sense while maintaining control over it. Does this mean whenever I want to... to feel you, all I have to do is open myself? Exactly. Even though you may be far away? Of course. As he pulled her close, Flaina languished in the warmth and security of his embrace, feeling content despite his imminent voyage to other lands. The realization that he was just as reluctant to leave her as she was to let him go made the whole situation different. She wished suddenly that she could accompany him, but that same inner sense made it clear this would not be possible. You'll be better equipped to face the hazards without me along to protect. Much as I would like to go, do what you must. I will be here when you return. He touched a finger tenderly to her lips and smiled. It will be easier for me knowing you'll be safe here in Hopetown. He quelled the fear of the unknown lurking in his thoughts, but was unable to shake the fire of desperation in the Shade's countenance. What was wrong with Paul? Will an enchanter be able to deal with it effectively without invoking the wrath of specters as Rothson had? But for now, these questions would wait until the morning. Hmm. 
He closed off the fretting part of his mind and turned all his attention to his promised mate, slipping arms around her and placing her beside him as he lay on the bed again. I love you, Flana. She pressed lips to his, warm and soft, as they cuddled and caressed in an exchange of depthless passion. dismay at his pale complexion in the mirror, he decided he would relent and walk himself over to the campus infirmary and see what the nurses had to offer in the way of assistance and kindness. But he didn't want to go alone and was waiting for Marie to get back from her afternoon classes so she could give him some much needed company. He frowned to himself, unsettled by her increasing absence of late. Then disregarded it as just his bored imagination. Hell, I've been holed up in my room for three days. That's liable to make anyone grumpy and lonely. And Marie had been kind enough to bring him his meals, not that he had much of an appetite, with his stomach feeling like it had been. In actuality, he would get hungry, but no sooner would he start to eat than his gut would cramp or stab and he'd have to stop. Well, I've had enough. Time to put the medical profession to work and cure me of this, be it virus, stomach bug, or whatever. I've already missed too many classes. He went to pull on some clothes, wanting to be ready to go when Marie finally arrived. He should be visiting the student infirmary soon. Dr. Brent tapped his pencil on his desk blotter. If he doesn't, the lad is either stupid or possesses a high threshold for pain. You don't seem very concerned about the prospect. The sultry blonde was seated on one side of his desk. Won't they do some sort of test on him? Nothing more extreme than a temperature and a pulse. They'll notice his skin condition, perhaps, but attribute it to a bout of influenza. She smiled appreciatively with a glint of prurience in her sparkling blue eyes. I do like your confidence, but I'm interested in your worst-case scenario. They send him to ER for some blood panels and a urine check. Want a blood test reveal the poison? Not unless they're looking for it specifically. And even if they did suspect a chemical agent, they wouldn't be scanning for anything as simple and melodramatic as arsenic. Don't be too sure, lover. You are a foreigner here just as much as me. He patted her leg reassuringly as he sat forward and dropped his pencil in the Oxford mug. A 
if you're that worried, then give me a ring if he's going there, won't you? You'd better get going. She slipped gracefully to the floor and saw her purse. Should he get another dose tonight? Maximilian considered this for a moment before standing and leaning his tongue. I think not. Let's give him respite for a day, then continue tomorrow. Let him think he's getting better for a little while. She quirked an eyebrow at him and pursed her lips. You're positively cruel, Dr. Brantz. Only with your able assistance, my dear. Off with you now. Sauntering over, her heels giving her hips that extra sexy shift, she grabbed his shirt and pulled him close. That's not all that will be off when I get back. You're mine, Maximilian. She ran her tongue up his neck, nibbled his ear, then released him and headed out the office door. Watching his voluptuous partner depart with a last suggestive look in his direction, Dr. Brent turned his attention to the more immediate necessities of a meeting with the pathology residents, putting aside any further thoughts about Paul Bach, Marie Ryder, and the drow named Sacandra, who sought them both. In less than a fortnight, none of the three will be of any consequence. City, demons and demigods. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mesdames and Messieurs, Madame and Heron. Amasi Caballeros, Shio, and others in languages of which I am unfamiliar. Hello. Here we pause for the finish of Book One of A Bridge of Doom. But by no means is this the end of the series, the stories, or the sound plays. This first book is actually the smallest of the sextology so far written. Have no fear, the stories and characters continue. I am an author, classically trained musician, educator, and sound engineer, among many talents, I suppose. This is what I do. I've been mastering sound production since the 1970s when I was at the North Carolina School of the Arts. Over 30 years ago, I created the Harker Theater alongside fellow alumni for presenting his comedy plays, The Martian Archives, and my science fiction adventures of cusp for affiliates of National Public Radio. These were playful romps within the world of audio productions. I am now retired from nearly 40 years with 50 hours per week of teaching, thus I am happily able to invest most of my days and weeks in creating performances of my books. Unlike other podcasts, the Harkin Theater will not evaporate. We are here to stay. Thank you. Thank you. The far-reaching story of A Bridge of Doom continues through at least five more books. And though many have said these would make great movies, your compliments are graciously noted. Unless I am given overriding control with a competent director armed with a generous budget, 
I refuse to allow faulty interpretations from Hollywood studios to sour and alter the storylines as has been done to so very many. Except for my wonderful actors and musicians, I am the entire staff and production crew of the Harkin Minimal compared to a film or commercial sound studio. However, the necessary recording equipment, audio tape, and our websites are not provided for free. Yes, audio tape. My productions are based on analog magnetic true life recordings. Your help with these costs are graciously appreciated, and it's very easy. As I've always said in the introductions, just buy me a coffee via the website shown in each episode description. Minimum donation of a dollar. Contributors will be clearly announced in the final credits, unless you prefer to remain anonymous. As always, thank you truly for listening. I sincerely hope you continue to enjoy my offerings. If you care to chat, you can write to our email. I will respond swiftly. And finally, there will be an interval of a couple of weeks as I reconnoiter all my resources and equipment and era for continuing the productions. And now, without further ado, and before the final credits of this last episode of Book One, here is a preview of Book Two, coming soon to a podcast near you. supposed to put stairs in the dark. They waited for Bill to hold the door for them, and then were rudely slammed shut in their faces. Bill! This is no time for games. The door's locked. It won't open. Let me punch my ass into that panic bar. These things can't lock from the inside. The door refused to budge. It's no use, Art. We've got to figure something else out. Pale blue light washed over them as Gaewan released a small glowing sphere into the air above them. The two men glanced up at it with amazement for a moment, then at the enchantment. The door latch rattled from the other side for a moment, Bill making the same conclusion. The elevator! Why are we fighting the stupid door? Art marched further down the corridor and rounded the corner. God, I can be dim sometimes. Paul and Gaewan followed with Marie, the enchanter's pale blue witch light hovering above them. They found Ark repeatedly pushing an unresponsive call button. Bring me up already! It's not lighting up! Damn it to hell! I was afraid that would be too easy. Paul tried not to jostle Marie in his arms. The darkness and the circumstance reminded him uncomfortably of his battle with the specters in the palace corridors. Pounding his fist with frustration on the call button, Ark stared at Paul with fearful knowingness. This is weird! Stairs or elevator or nothing. There is no other way out. At that moment, there came a noise from far down the corridor, almost like the sound of the wind being swallowed, the very air being folded aside, accompanied by a definite sensation of psychic coldness. 
Gawon turned his head and searched the darkness back the way they had come, his skin prickling with unpleasant knowingness. Something evil from beyond, something that did not belong in this world, had been allowed entrance. Oh, shit. Let's get away from this dead end. The stairs are going to be our best bet. You want help with her, Paul? Lead the way, Flyboy. Just get us out of here. Bart was running back before Gawain could caution him, possibly stop him from going first. He kept with Paul's slow pace, and his primary duty was protecting both he and Marie, though his wound ached worse with each moment. Bill! Art yelled through the stuck door. Get help! Hurry! Then pressed his ear to the door and listened for a moment. I hope he was still out there. He may be waiting for us upstairs. He'll figure it out pretty quick either way. He sensed the air change suddenly, and he searched the blackness ahead of them futilely, his body shivering slightly with the coldness, while in his arms Marie At Paul's side, Gawain too gazed expectantly into the artificial night, determination on his brow. Running his thoughts over an immediate concern, the enchanter worried about his declining stamina. The chance of his survival in a clash of magic and power with Brynth, or whatever had been gated in, was getting slim, yet it didn't appear they were being given much of a choice. The sheer force of the magic slammed against the wall, his dim ball of light winking out, leaving him and his three friends in the dim, ruddy glow of the exit side. Before the other two could react, an eerie glow lived an unfamiliar figure standing halfway down the corridor toward where Brynth had been left in his summoning trance. Your time has come, four-time prince. Come, I will take you through the gateway to Fake and your realm. The figure offered a hand in Paul's direction. Prince? Totally confused, Art looked between his friend and the silhouette. As much as Paul wanted to return to Fayek, it was plain to him that this was not the way, nor the time. Before, his translation between worlds had been with light, but here all that lay ahead was in darkness. And above all, both Marie and Gawain needed medical attention. No. What did you say? Who are you? What did you do to him? My, what a forbidding noise you creatures make when cornered. The figure stepped closer, conjuring a spark of dark yellow flame in his palm, illuminating a devilish leer shining out of a dark countenance. Humans of terror, do you wish to defy Sokandra, my prince? What are you? That would be telling your answer. In loving memory of Adam, fare thee well, dearest student, drum major, and friend.